this trip, we were uh, had been in line for about uh, about fifteen minutes, and and we came to a, a place where where there was a sign that said uh, one hour wait from this point. Uh, we had already waited for an hour or for fifteen minutes just to get to the the spot where the official line started, but but that was okay because it was Disneyland. Uh, or Disney, well, I don't remember which one it was that time, but we, we were we were at Disney, and the, the happiest place on earth, although when you're a, kid, a parent with small kids, I'm not sure that really is always true, but but we we were getting ready to, to go on Space Mountain for the first time, and, and so an hour wait's no big deal. Now, who cares that it was 100 degrees, and the guy in front of me uh, didn't smell so good, or at least I was hoping the smell was him and not me, but... Uh, but there we stood, and, and we, we, we were in line for about another half hour when we finally got inside the building uh, where, where there was air conditioning. And, and uh, so the rest of the, the wait wasn't nearly as bad, but you were kind of staking back and forth, and you almost felt like you know cattle's being, cattle being led to the slaughter. But, but that's okay because it was Space Mountain and, and Disney, and we were excited. And I remember as we got up to the front, and, and you kind of could start counting with how many people they put in each car, and, how many people are in front of us, and we were gonna, you know, we were gonna maybe catch the next one, and and just as we got to that spot where we were waiting, and we were gonna be in the next set of cars, some people appeared out of nowhere, and and I remember the guy saying, the the Disneyland employee saying there, uh, okay, you guys will get to go next, and I'm thinking that's not fair, because we're first in line, they shouldn't get to go, that's not fair. Uh, that that same trip, we were flying back. We were flying southwest, and it was right after Southwest had just implemented the uh, the A, B, and C cards. You know, and and back then you could, if you did early enough, you get an A. Now the only way you can get an A seat in Southwest is to pay extra money for it. But uh, but but we had A cards, and and I remember they came over the intercom and and, and said the flight to Kansas City was had just landed, and as soon as it deplaned that we would load up and, and get on the flight. And, and as people walked out and finally the last one came walking out, they came on and, and said, okay, everyone holding an A card can line up now. And I remember being excited because I had and our whole family had A cards. And so I got up in the A line and we'd got to the airport early and we'd stationed ourselves so we could get right in the front of the line because this is actually before they gave the numbers. You just, you just lined up as A's and and so we were right at the front of the line. We were going to be the first on the plane, which meant we could choose the front of the plane if we wanted so that we could get off when we got to Kansas City first. We could sit at the back of the plane, closer to the bathroom. So my wife, I was looking at, I was looking at Maggie because that's probably where she likes to sit. Uh, we could sit in, the, in, in the, the wing seats where there's extra, you know, if, hey, if you'll read that card and you'll say, You'll open the door when the plane crashes. <laughs> you know, like that's going to happen. But, um, but, but there's extra foot room there. We could have our choice of where we want to sit. So, so we're there ready to go. And, and they came on and said, we're ready to board the flight, whatever it was, to Kansas City. But before we board A, parents traveling with small children, handicapped people, get to go first. And I'm, I'm thinking that's not fair. I was first in line. I've got the A card. That's not, that's just not fair. I, I remember a trip to the mall one time, and it was one of those days where it seemed like everyone was there. It's probably around Christmas time, and we're, we're, 
we're doing that driving around trying to get a spot. And finally, I see a, a van pull out up pretty close to the front, and it pulls out. And so I began to, yes, this is me, I began to speed up so I could be the first one in line. And I, I'm, I'm looking, and there really was no other call, cards that I was going to have to uh, um, joust with to get that spot. And, and as it pulled out, in fact, I think I maybe even had Rita get out and kind of block traffic just so no one would try to do that. And, and uh, it pulled out, and I started to pull in when I saw it. It was faint, but it was there. Yeah, the handicap stuff on the ground showing us for handicap. I'm thinking, that's not fair. Why did the handicap people get the close, close parking spots all the time? You know, it, it's ingrained in us, isn't it, that we want to be first. I, uh, I remember watching grade school children. I, I subbed for uh, a few times at elementary school in Rushville. And, and, you know, a big thing, and maybe it was when I was a kid, I don't remember, but, but in elementary school, at least at Rushville, it was a big thing to be line leader. Any of our teachers, your kids were fighting over who got to be line leader. Pushing and shoving, no, I'm line leader today. They wanted to be first in line. We just want to be first. Well, I've got some good news for you this morning. Jesus lets us know that we can be first. So those of us that desire to be first, Jesus gives us direction on how we can do that. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 10 and and follow along as Jesus gives us the the prescription, kind of lays out the the map on how we can end up first uh, in our our world. Uh, Verse 41, starting in chapter 10, verse 41 When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. I'll explain that here in a minute. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus tells us here how we can be first. Now you have to guess that it probably was going to be a little different than what we might think. Jesus starts off by talking about a different, uh, a different agenda. And, and he starts, starts by, by, by saying four, I think four pivotal words in, in, uh, in verse 43. This is what he says at the start of verse 43. He says, not so with you. Not so with you. Now let me let me give you the backstory. Right before this had happened, uh, Jesus in verse thirty three had had predicted again that he was going to go to the cross. Uh, we, we mentioned that a couple weeks ago that we had that same instance where where Jesus had predicted he was going to go to the cross, and then Peter got upset and rebuked him about that. But 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 he does it again. Just prior to this, Jesus had said, "Hey, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die, and I'll be raised in three days." Uh, immediately following that, James and John, two of the apostles, came to Jesus. They pulled Jesus off to the side, and they said, "Hey, Jesus, when when you come into your kingdom, so really what they were saying, Jesus, when you when you end up on your throne of power, and really." If you want to get even more specific, what they were saying, Jesus, when you take over in, in Jerusalem and we kick these Romans out of the country, we have a question. Will, will, you let it, will you tell us, give us what we ask? Will you let one of us sit on your right hand and one of us sit on your left? In, in other words, what they were asking was, you're going to be on the throne. Hey, you're number one. You get to sit on that throne. 
there. Uh, but but we want to sit on the right and the left hand because that's the, the two most prominent positions uh, besides the one sitting on the throne. I, I'm sure at that time they, they probably pointed out to Jesus. Now, now remember Jesus, we're blood. James and John were his, were, were Jesus' cousins. And so I'm sure they threw that in. Well, your aunt will be really thrilled. Uh, and in fact, you know, Aunt Mary would, uh, would love if we were to sit there, one on your right. The family would be so proud, Jesus. Here's the problem. They were totally missing. Yet again, they were totally missing what his kingdom was about. Uh, Jesus wasn't talking about sitting on a throne in Jerusalem he wasn't talking about a kingdom that was contained by the walls of a palace or that was defined by its borders or defended by armies. That's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus was talking about. What he was talking about was the kingdom of our hearts. And the throne that Jesus wanted to sit on had nothing to do with a, with a chair in a palace. The, the, the throne that he wanted to sit on was the throne of our hearts. Jesus wants to set up in our lives and, and see the change that can happen there. But they didn't get it. When you set up your kingdom, we, we want to be one on the right and one on the left. But, but before we sit in too much judgment, because I, I read this passage and, uh, and I just kind of just, I just shake my head at the, the foolishness of these guys, how, how they continually didn't get it. But, but before I get too general, Let's stop and think about what we do, because because I wonder if we're not a little bit like the apostles. And when Jesus talked about kingdoms, they weren't quite getting it. I wonder if we don't really don't always get it ourselves. Jesus, the kingdom that he talks about, still is the same with us. He wants to be the ruler of our hearts. Jesus wants to come in and take control of us and change us and make us look like him. But I think sometimes we get it all mixed up. Let me give you an illustration of this. When I was a uh, right out of college, the first church I preached at was a little church in U, Missouri. It's about an hour and a half south of, of Kansas City, a little farming community, a dairy community, a lot of dairy farmers there at the time. And and, uh, and we had a couple in the church named Charlie and Rhoda Goodenough. Um, and they, they, they were probably in their 80s at the time, a sweet couple. They they were really nice to, to Rita and, and myself, and very friendly and very good. And, you know, a nice couple in the church, very dead. Every, every Sunday they were there. They were there for Sunday. Good couple in the church. And our church went through a period where, where they decided they wanted to pad the pews of the church. Our, our shoes were just, if you pulled up these cushions, that's what our pews were. So people are having to sit on hard pews during church. And boy, you don't want to you don't want to have to sit on a hard pew and listen to a long, boring sermon now. So, so I, I, and maybe it's just when I got there, they decided, man, we need to pad these babies. I, I don't, I don't know what it was, but, but the church and the church didn't have a lot of money, but they had just a little bit. And I remember we had a big old congregational meeting about should we pad the pews of the church, and it was going to be I don't know four or five thousand dollars. It was quite a bit of money to pad the pews of the church. And there were people that were, yeah, we need them, and there were other, people, no, let's spend that money on ministry let's send it to missionaries or we went back and forth and and, and we didn't decide anything. like congregational meetings we didn't decide anything but word came like the next week that charlie goodenough had said he would pay himself for the padding of the pews i'm thinking yes win-win everyone's happy we get padded pews and the church doesn't have to spend any money i think this is great and then there comes the caveat they want to pad the pews but 
they want them to be orange, burnt orange. Now, it's fine color. If you're a Texas fan, it's fine color. Some of you guys have kind of orange shirts on. You look really nice. They look, burnt orange is great. Now, the problem was, and, and I don't care about fashion. I, I have to ask Rita, does this go together? And, and I'm okay today. I didn't ask you today. But, um, I'm not, but, but I kind of knew that burnt orange wasn't going to go with the green carpet that was in the, the sanctuary. And I didn't care. You know, I, I don't care what color they are. We're getting padded pews. Here's the deal, though. Burn orange or the deal's off. I'll pay every penny, $5,000, but you got to use my color. Now, the church had enough people like me that didn't care. They're like, okay, you want to spend your money, do it. But, but, but I wonder if what they really weren't saying was, well, Charlie, I, I want to sit on your right, Jesus. And Rhoda, I want to sit on your left. We're, we're going to do it. We're going to do what Jesus, but we want, we want to be one on your right hand and one on the left. Within what, two blocks of, uh, of us, uh, a block south is the Methodist Church, uh, two blocks over the Baptist Church. Within two or three blocks, there's three different churches uh, here, here in Troy. And only a few more blocks than we have a Catholic church. Why are there so many churches in, in that small, and, and, and I'm not suggesting that we combine all of our churches or anything like that, but, but you know why? It's because years and years ago, people decided, I know I want to sit on the right, and I want to sit on the left, and so we're going to do it, we're going to start our own church so we can be on the right and the left hand of Jesus. So we can sit in judgment uh, of these disciples, like, man, they just weren't getting it, but, well, we do the same. Every, every time there's strife in the church, Every time we butt heads and, and, and get upset at one another, it isn't really kind of the, what's going on there is we're saying, yeah, but I want to sit on the right hand or I want to sit on the left hand of Jesus. So, so you can kind of understand at least a little bit here what was going on. But Jesus was pointing out that, that there was a different agenda and, and it was going to be defined by a different glory. See, the glory wasn't going to come the glory wasn't going to come by, by what they, 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 they look like in the world. The glory wasn't going to come from sitting beside a throne. Jesus said, no, my kingdom is much different than that. But, but we want to be first. We want to be first. Now, I, I like going to wedding dances. Um, not as much as my wife. She likes to dance more than I do. But, but she drags me out on a couple of them. Uh, there's some dances. When our kids got married and, and, and all of our kids' friends, when they all got married, there are a few dances that were done at every dance, uh, every wedding dance. One of them was YMCA. My, my kids love that one. And, and that's one of the few dances that require real stuff going on, you know, actions that I can do. Because who can't do YMC or C? A? I mean, I could do that one. So I could stand on this, you know, I See, I can't do that, I guess. YMCA. Okay. I stood on the side or went to the bathroom or something. But anyway, uh, YMCA. The next song we did, didn't we do this one at every day, all of our kids' dances, was uh, We Are Family, Sister Sledge. All my sisters, but my wife got, all the girls in my family, all the women in my family went out and they, they danced away to We Are Family. And all the guys just stood on the sideline. And then there's that one song. I asked Rita what the song was and she couldn't remember the name. Remember there's one dance where where you all just act foolish and you 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 uh, stand up, honey. No. Wow, Chad's saying I'm not gonna. I really I'm not gonna embarrass you. I really I just need 
Anyone? Somebody stand up. Go, thank you. No, no, okay, go, go, go. I'm disappointed in you, honey. It's, it's that dance. Do you know what? Where, where you get behind the guy behind and you do the walk and you know, what, what is that? What? Come on, there we go. There we go. Come on, honey. That's what it's called. You, you do, you do that. We, we did that recently. We had some friends that turn, uh, that celebrated their 40th wedding anniversary, Butch and Lou, and, uh, they had a dance party in their garage. It was real fun. And, uh, they did that. And I, I've always been embarrassed by that. I just, something about holding on, even if it was my wife, just like, uh, so we did that in theirs, and, and it went around the garage and outside, and when it went outside and they turned around and came back in, I didn't. I stayed outside. <laughs> but, but that dance is kind of interesting because the person in front gets to pick. At Butch and Lou's, I don't even know who ended up in front at that dance, but whoever got in front, they're the one who decided to go outside, which I'm like, sweet, because I can jump out of this real quick. But the guy in front gets to lead. It, it's kind of how we are. We, we want to be in front. Jesus understood, Jesus understood personalities. Jesus understood our hearts. Jesus understands us that our natural desire is to be first. Our natural desire is we want to be great. Because we think first. But they had it all mixed up. No, notice what Jesus says. Uh, you know that those, this is verse uh, 42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Basically, basically, he's kind of slamming them there because what he's saying is, you're thinking just like a Gentile. You're thinking just like a Gentile when when you think of what it means to be great. Let me let me give you an illustration. That's that's like someone saying to a K State fan that that's like. Someone saying to Malie, you act just like a KU fan. Oh, I know, that's bad, isn't it? Yeah, that hurts. That hurts. Or, or, someone, or, or someone saying to a Riverside fan, you act just like a Troy fan. I hear there's a little between Riverside and, and Troy from the past. I don't you know. So basically, that's exactly what he was saying. Uh, that's how the Gentiles think, he said. But then he said this, not so with you. Jesus was saying it's not, it's a different glory that that I want you to be after. Uh, a missionary to China, famous missionary Robert Morrison wrote this. He said, the great fault, I think, in our mission is that no one likes to be second. The world has yet to see what could happen if everyone lost the desire to get the glory. Wouldn't it be a marvelous place if nobody cared who got the credit? Uh, there, there's a different agenda, and it comes with a different glory, but it also comes, and this is what Jesus is describing, it comes with a different uh, greatness. Peter DeVries says this, Jesus' life and teaching turns the world's worldly understanding of greatness and great works on its head. The greatest work ever done was accomplished by one who gave his life for others. Jesus invites followers to join him in becoming great and doing great things, not the way the world judges great, but the way God judges it. Mother Teresa uh, uh, came to great notoriety and actually uh, great power. She, she had great voice and found herself in some of the most powerful halls of government all over the world and, and, and even in, in the White House. Of United. She, she came to that. Why? Because of a great act of service. 
It was her service that led her to greatness. The disciples, disciples had been allowing the world and their culture to define greatness. They, they were thinking that greatness surely must mean a palace somewhere where we have authority over people, where people look at us and, and are impressed. They look up to us and want to be like us. They, they must because almost all the apostles except probably Matthew had grown up poor. They, they, they weren't highly educated. And, and so most of them probably thought, well, well, greatness is going to be, is going to equate to, to possessions and money. When I'm great, I'm going to have all this kind of stuff. But Jesus pointed out that it meant a completely different thing. When our agenda is changed, we also have, we have a different kind of grace. What, what becomes important to us changes. Because greatness isn't defined by a worldly definition. It's defined by a Jesus definition. Tony Campolo, uh, in, in one of his uh, film series, tells a story uh, about a friend of his named Charlie. Charlie was, uh, was a Ph.D. in literature and, and was teaching at, at, a, at a college and, and ended up resigning his job and got a job at the post office delivering mail. He felt just like God had called him to change his whole world view and change everything. And, and Campolo, who, who was familiar with this guy and friends with this guy, went to him and tried to convince him that, that, that you're wasting all of your education. You're wasting the mastery of, of, of the English, English language. You're, you're making a mistake here. But when he realized that he was never going to change his mind, he said this. He said, well, well, if I can't change your mind, at least be a good mailman. And, and his, his friend Charlie made this comment to him. He said, well, you know what? I don't think I'm a very good mailman. And Campolo says, what, what, what do you mean? He says, well, all the other mailmen get back, uh, back to the, the post office by 1 o'clock. But me, it's usually 5 or 6 o'clock before I make it back to, to, the, to the post office. He said, I find myself stopping and talking to, to little old widow ladies and uh, widowers that are lonely. And I stop on the street and I, I talk to children and and he said, but I do have one problem. I said, I can't sleep. And Cabo says, really? Why can't you sleep? He said, well, you drink 15 cups of coffee a day, and, and you wouldn't be able to sleep either. Capolo said he ended up thinking that the, the rally, is, and, and he envisioned the reality of this guy's, what his ministry was now. It, it was stopping and speaking to a, a lady that no one else spoke to during the day. It was talking to a teenager on the kid that everyone else had ignored, but ask him how his day was and ask him how school was. It, it, it was seeing people that were hurting and asking questions and knowing when life was, was tough for them, spending the time, time to just sit in their living room and drink a cup of coffee and share with them. It, it was a different grace. See, we can be first, but we have to have a different agenda. Uh, we, we can be first, but it's going to take a dynamic attitude. Our attitude has got to change. There's good news, we can be first, but uh, Jesus uses a couple words that probably probably aren't our favorite in describing what it, uh, what it looks like. Notice in verse 43, not so with you. Whoever wants to be great, and, and here's the first one, among you must be your servant. So greatness is defined or is described as a, a servant. Uh, and, and verse 44, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave. So, 
So he says our attitude must change. We must have a dynamic attitude that changes to be a servant and a slave. It's going to take dynamic humility, dynamic humility for us to change. Jesus could be described by many different words throughout his ministry. One of the most powerful words that Jesus was described as was humble. He had every right to to go through the countryside expecting people to bow, expecting people to serve him, expecting people to give him his due. He was the son of God. But that wasn't his attitude. Jesus instead was, was humble. If you want to be first and have greatness, it starts by being great in the eyes of the one whose opinion really counts. Being great in the eyes of the Lord by being humble. Now, I, I consider myself a pretty humble person. <laughs> the problem is when you think you're humble is when you get humbled, it's really hard to accept. Let, let me illustrate. Um, Fifteen years ago, I, maybe... 14 years ago, something like that, my oldest son, Brian, and his wife, Christy, got married. They, were, they got married in, uh, uh, in Joplin, not just in Joplin, they got married on the campus of Ozark Christian College, which is where I graduated from. My son and his, his wife both graduated from there, and they got married in the chapel. And I tell you what, I was excited because my first child to get married, and I was going to do the service. So I get to do perform the ceremony to marry my son. But not just that. I don't know why I was more excited about, about that or that it was in the chapel at Ozark Christian College. And I was going to stand on the stage. I was going to stand on the stage at Ozark where I had seen, I, I mentioned Tony Campolo quite often. Tony Campolo, I'd heard him stand on that stage and preach before. Ken Eidelman, who was the president of Ozark Christian College, had stood on that stage and preached. And and, and so many other famous people and, and great leaders in the church had stood on that stage. And I was going to stand on the stage at Ozark Christian College and I was going to preach. Well, it's kind of a wedding sermon, but I still, I'm still on the, the, the stage. And I was stoked. The, the day before the wedding, that Friday, we arrived and we, we met a little bit before rehearsal was to start. I walk into the chapel. You remember this, honey? <laughs> uh, I walk into the chapel and... Uh, and I notice right in the middle, there's kind of a riser that is connected into the steps. And it, you know, it's about that high, and it, it's sitting there, and I'm thinking, what's that for? And, and we, we made our way up to the front kind of right before we started and got talking. And Brian and Christy came over and said, okay, this is what we're thinking, Dad. Uh, we're going to stand up on the stage. The wedding party's going to be the stage, and we're going to have you stand on that riser. So you know what that meant? Number one, I wasn't on the stage. And number two, I was going to do the whole wedding like this. Now, I don't know if I've got a good side, but this is not it. It's not, not my good side. And, and I remember thinking, no. I, I, that's going to be weird. I'm going to be talking to them like it's their wedding or something. I'm going to be talking to them and no one's going to be able to see me. And I had, I had a couple jokes and stuff that I really needed to be able to react, you know, see the reaction of the crowd. And, and that is just not going to work. And, and I went over to my wife and I said something. And I, I think I kind of said, I don't know, guys. And my, my daughter-in-law, she knew what she wanted. And I wasn't going to change her mind. And, um, and, but I remember going to, my, to, to Rita and I said, honey, that is not going to work. And I remember what Rita said. She said, don't you usually tell couples... Uh, when you meet with them, and this is what I do, that uh, 
it's their wedding and don't let any, anyone, even their parents, change their mind on stuff. Let them do the wedding they want. You said something like that. Didn't you? I said, this is different though. <laughs> this is me. That's great advice, but that doesn't apply now. And, and I remember going over to my friend Brian Brubaker. Dr. Brubaker was a, uh, was a college friend of mine. Uh, uh, he was in Reed and I's wedding. I was in his wedding. He was a professor now at Ozark Christian College. And when, when Chrissy, Brian's wife-to-be, first met Brian, she went to class the next day. She had Dr. Brubaker for class and, and said, Hey, do you know a Brian Champ? Do you know anything about Brian Champ? And Brian's like, of course, he thinks we named him after him. So he said, Yeah, he He's my friend's son. I, I saw him when he was a day old. And, and uh, so I went over to my friend Brian because surely he understood that you don't want to stand with your back. And, and I remember telling him the whole deal. I'm like, Brian, I'm gonna, I, wanna, I was going to stand on the stage. And he, he, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like this. Get over yourself. <laughs> Boy, that was a hard, man, that was a hard lesson to learn. Humility? Does that mean I've got to let someone else decide? Wow. Jesus calls for a dynamic humility. That's what Jesus had. And, and if, if, we're going to, if we're going to ascend to greatness, if we're going to truly be first, then we have to be humble like Jesus was humble. Jesus also had a, a, a dynamic love. John Vodder, in his book, Uncommon Grace, said this, wrote this. He said, as a boy... Not yet old enough to drive, I spent a lot of time in the car with my mom behind the wheel. Whenever another driver extended, extended special courtesy, like you know, letting you cut into traffic or whatever, so she would always say this, well, he must be a Christian. Vodder uh, uh, goes on to say, in my youthful uh, uh, understanding, I developed a simplistic but delightful worldview in which acts of courtesy and kindness proved a person's relationship with Christ and acts of discourtesy and unkindness proved that a person was an unbeliever. He said, as an adult, I realized that that was simple. But he said, I still choose to believe that those whose lives are committed to Jesus demonstrate uncommon grace. See, we have a, we have a, a dynamic or an uncommon love when we're touched by Jesus. Victor Frankl, who was a Nazi concentration camp survivor, said this, we lived in a concentration. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offered sufficient proof that everything can be taken away from a man, but one thing—the last of human freedoms—to choose one's attitude in any given circumstance, to choose one's own way, to choose to have dynamic love. And if we're going to have a dynamic attitude, then we have to have dynamic service. Uh, are you starting to see how Jesus defines greatness? It's, it's not something that we can earn and, and, and then force others to do for us. It's not about how others can impact us, but how we can in, impact others. Greatness comes in having an attitude and a heart of service. Before before the restaurant, Carlos O'Kelly's closed. That was my favorite restaurant in St. Joe, Carlos O'Kelly's. And we, we would go in there, and I, I, uh, I love salsa. And Carlos O'Kelly's was the best salsa. So I, I would go in, and, and they, you know, they'd bring me a little bowl, and, and I mean, I, 
before they'd come back, it was empty. And, and, and we ended up getting a, a waitress there one time that realized my love for salsa. And, and it got so much so that we, we figured out her name, and we would ask for her every time we went. Because when she saw us, she would come out with a soup bowl of salsa for me. I mean, the first one, a chip, and, and usually two, two things of chips and a big old soup bowl and a, another small one for Rita. Um, her, her, her name was Angie, and, and I tell you what, we loved Angie. And we loved to have her because she knew how to serve. Man, she, my, my drink wouldn't even, my Diet Coke wouldn't even get close to empty, and there was another Diet Coke. We loved Angie because she served. Uh, we, we as a church can, uh, can be defined by a lot of things. You know, we can be fi- defined by having a great service. We can be, be defined by having great Sunday school. We can be defined by, by having great friendliness and great fellowship and great av- activities and and even to be defined as having great unity. But, but if we want to be great as a church, if we want to be great, it, let, let me say it again, if we want to be great, then we have to be defined by our heart of service. We have to be defined by our heart of service. Martin Luther King said, everyone can be great because anyone can serve. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? Then learn to serve. We'll finish here. This is what Jesus says to, to finish up the thought. Verse 45. If, you, uh, if you're in the habit of underlining your Bible, I definitely underline this verse, one of the most powerful verses in the book of Mark. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus basically, basically was saying to them, I, I'm defining greatness for you. I'm showing you what attitude you have. And, and then he finishes with, let me illustrate it for you. Let, let me tell you what I'm talking about. I came not to be served, but to serve. I didn't come so people could pat me on the back, so people could praise me. I mean, it happened, but I didn't come for that. I came instead to show the example through service. A a deity in action. We saw Jesus showing us what to do. He he had a a, a different practice. His his practice was to show uh, an attitude of service. Why were there always crowds around Jesus? Well, some of the crowds were there because he was the newest, hottest thing in town, so they wanted to be a part of it. Some of them were there because they'd seen the miracles and they either wanted a miracle for their own life or they wanted to see what was going to happen next. Yeah, there were people hanging on for that reason. There were people there because he fed he fed the 5,000. Later on he said fed 4,000. So there were people that hung on because I might get a free meal out of it. But you know why most of the people were there? Because there was something different about this Jesus. And And I know they had to be thinking, if... If this Jesus would, would go to the house of a tax collector and have lunch, then maybe he would come to my house and have lunch. If this Jesus would reach down and touch a leper, then maybe he would reach down and touch me. If this Jesus would notice a child and pick a child up and embrace it in his arms, then maybe Jesus would, would be willing to touch me and show me compassion and care. If, if, if this Jesus didn't get frustrated when a guy broke through the roof and dropped down right in front of him, interrupting his sermon. If that Jesus could show patience and compassion during that, then maybe he'll show me compassion. If if that Jesus could say to a guy who he knew was going to turn around and walk away from him, I love you and see him with love, then maybe he could see through my heart and my unbelief and still love me. If Jesus could forgive a woman that was caught in adultery, then maybe Jesus could see past my sin 
and my loss and still offer forgiveness and hope for me. Jesus had a different practice. And, and we see in that last part of that verse, he had a different purpose. Because that's why he came. Notice what he says at the end. And to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he was there. That's what defined greatness was that Jesus came to give his life for us. I, I remember standing at the end of the hour and 15 to 20 minute wait for Space Mountain, almost there, when someone else was moved to the front of the line and thinking that's not fair. And then I noticed who it was. It was a mother pushing a wheelchair with a handicapped child. And I was humbled. I, I, I remember in the airport when they said, well, we're, we're going to, we're going to let people with small children go first and thinking that's not fair. But then, th- then I saw the parents with their diaper bags and strollers. And, and I remembered a couple times when we traveled and our kids were little and it was such a hassle. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm humbled. And, and I remember as I pulled up and realized it was a handicap. Uh, parking spot and thinking, ah, oh, that's not fair. I remember back to the time Rita had broken her ankle and had to walk with crutches and got a temporary handicap sticker. And we took advantage of that several times. And I was humbled. Jesus says, if you want to be first, if you want to be great, you have to be a servant. I grew up in a uh, small town, the railroad tracks uh, cut the town of, of my uh, my hometown of Woodlawn in, in half, and we lived right by the tracks. So there were there were trains constantly going through our our town, and um, and oftentimes they would stop and wait because it was a, a double track and it was a place where trains would would wait to switch, and 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 uh, one train would pass, and so trains were sitting there all the time. And, and more than once, a train would be sitting there, and the caboose would be just across from our house, and 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 we would call would would cross the, the the road and go up to the caboose and more than once those guys let us into the caboose not i'll just say this now trains don't have caboose anymore but not a place for a small kid or a teenage kid to be because there was things there you shouldn't see but but boy we it was so exciting my dad had worked for the railroad and and, and i you know was enthralled with the railroad and and, uh, and and i i remember as trains would go by those guys would sit you know usually one on either side of that window that kind of stuck out from the caboose and and, and we always would wave at those guys, and those guys sat there. I thought, man, that must be the dream job, just sit in the caboose and ride across the countryside waving at kids. And, you know, man, that must be a fun, fun job. I, I, I remember talking to someone at a railroad uh, when, when they started to do, with, do away with cabooses. Um, and, and it was purely just to save money. And instead of a caboose, they put a red blinking light on the last car of the, the train. I remember talking to someone, and, and, and he was upset. He worked for the railroad, and I said, well, what are the cabooses there for? Because I never really knew, you know, the guys just sat there. I'd, maybe it's PR, just waving kids. But, but he said, they're, they're there to watch the train. When, when the train goes around corners, they're, now I don't know if they did it, but they're supposed to be watching. They can see from, the, from, from back, they can see the whole train. And, and if there's any issues, if, a, if, if a, a brake is locked up or if a bearing has gone out and, and it's sparking or something, they can see that and alert the, the engine that there's a problem. 
the purpose to being in the back of the train is so they can see everything in front. Jesus says, if you want to be first, be last. Put yourself last so you can see everyone out in front of you and see where the need is. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've called us to, to not be as the world would be. You've called us to greatness, a greatness that's defined so much differently than what, uh, the, than what we understand it. But Lord, you've called each one of us here to be great. You've called us to be first. But in doing so, we empty ourselves, we put ourselves uh, in, in an attitude of servanthood uh, with the thought of a slave so that we can serve others and in doing so, serve you. Lord, uh, Lord help, help each of us and help this church have that spirit and that heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning, you need to make a decision. Maybe you need to have prayer to, to, to reset your heart and reset your life so that you can be... Um, be great in the way Jesus wants you. If, if you need that, would you come?